0: Whether we pick up a guitar, turn on the radio, or tap a button on a mobile phone, we play music. Dancing, too, is often spoken of as fun, recreational, even playful. Engagement in the arts, whether as a performer or consumer, is often perceived as a diversion from work. On a larger political scale, investment in music and dance may be deemed wasteful, highlighting social concerns with the acceptance, respectability, and value of the arts. In recent years, however, music and dance scholars have increasingly turned their attention toward issues of labor, examining the work involved in the act of performance and the financial and cultural impact of arts economies around the world. Considering the labor involved in music and dance practices, as Carl Hagstrom Miller has argued, can alert us to the multiple ways in which music and dance creates value in our 21st century global economy. <laughs> You are listening to Ethnomusicology Today, a podcast produced by the Society for Ethnomusicology devoted to the exploration of contemporary issues in global music studies. I'm Trevor Harvey. In this episode, we talk with Anna Morkum, whose article, Terrains of Bollywood, Neoliberal Capitalism and the Transformation of Cultural Economies, was published in the journal Ethnomusicology. In her article, Anna examines late 20th and early 21st century Indian dance culture, contrasting the middle-class Bollywood dance craze with the rise of the less culturally accepted dance bar scene in India, bars in which female dancers were showered with money to perform seductively for an all-male clientele. While opposition to dance bars spurred numerous legal challenges, Anna investigates the bar's significant contribution to the Indian dance economy. In your article, you deal with varying degrees with three different genres of dance. Primarily, you're you're focusing on Bollywood dance and then dance bars. Uh, But also, to place it in context and in comparison, you also bring up a little bit about classical dance as well. And this historically is woven in there. Can you maybe to start with just talk a little about these three different styles of dance and their social settings and meetings?
1: Around a hundred, say, around a hundred years ago, early twentieth century classical music and dance was reformed, and it was appropriated into the into the bourgeoisie. Before that, and it wasn't the sort of thing middle class people would do, um, and especially for women, it was not seen as respectable you know, the only professional women performers who performed in, in front of men or in public were courtesans or the South Indian Devadasis who are, are basically courtesans, but attached to temples. So you could be, you could come from a middle-class background and dance classical dance or sing classical classical music, and that was sort of respectable, that, that um, gained its own respectability. But to do, you know, Hindi film songs, film songs which are about romance and love and... You know that would not be respectable, and classical performing arts were, of course, a, a quote-unquote high cultural tradition. So that was very much embraced by the state, the, the new independent Indian establishment, and given great cultural capital. Whereas um, Hindi cinema was not. So it's interest. I was interested to see this this big boom um, in uh, Bollywood dance. Even though it had previously been seen as something not really respectable, so on the one hand there was this huge expansion of, if you like, the legitimate world of dance. If you're a middle-class, um, you know, girl or a boy, you know, you can learn classical or you can do all this popular stuff. On the other hand, however, in the 1990s, dating from the late 1980s, there was also the rise of dance bars in Mumbai and in Maharashtra um, more generally. So, these dance bars were fueled by money uh, lower down in the middle class. Girls, per- well, performing in bars, performing to virtually only male audiences who would drink, and there was a, a strong element of seduction. It was not seen as a respectable thing to do, a quote unquote respectable thing to do. So, you know, a girl from a nice middle class family would not go and dance in a bar, but she could join a Bollywood dance troupe. That would be fine, and even earn a good, you know, a good professional living doing so.
0: So, when we go to this issue of respectability. Could you talk a little bit more about the role of dance and movement in the display of sexuality in these dance bars?
1: I saw dance bars in Kathmandu, Nepal, and that was, um, you know, there was some sort of naked or half-naked dancing and some really, really sexualized, almost simulated sex kind of dancing. But in the Bombay, uh, Mumbai dance bars, that was said not to be happening because of these these rules. There were rules about um, you weren't you know, the, the girls were on a stage. The, the customers weren't allowed to touch the girls, um, so on and so forth. Oh, and a dress code as well. Um, they had to wear full you know gharara choli, the sort of top and and skirt with a with a large shawl, Indian Indian dress. You got other kinds of bars which are more kind of pick up joints where you have girls just sort of hanging around and chatting to customers and having drinks with them and, and then going off to a sort of, you know, a lodge you know, later for sex. And these actually vastly multiplied after the closure of the dance bars, because you had all these unemployed bar girls and, and quite a lot of them did go into this scene. So in the dance bars, it was more, um, it was more sort of aesthetic seduction. <laughs> it was a lot of the seduction was, was through dance. So there was a huge sort of culture of, you know, desire. So that the, the the bar dancers, in, in a sense, became very powerful. They became objects of desire rather than um, women who could just be bored. Bar dancing was not a high status job, but there are many non high status jobs. If you look back to the reform of classical performing arts, for a, you know upper caste, upper class woman to be dancing in public at all would have, you know at, at one stage, would have been seen as, as just I mean, inconceivable. Shame on the family. Then now we see in the middle class world these girls dancing sexy songs in lycra outfits. It's been breaking a boundary, and, it, and it's and it's spoken in terms of a as a sort of liberation, um, a liberation of you know the body of these taboos over the, the female body. So dance, you know, back to dance bars. Bar dancers were earning a fairly good, solid middle class salary. Um, they were sending their children to school, English medium school. Even some were earning you know really large amounts. Became sort of you know star dancers. And I think you know I, I think it's not inconceivable if, if bars they were able to open, and they were regulated, which they started to become regulated. So with those rules, I could see middle class girls, you know, slowly, slowly going into that.
0: One thing that's interesting about this article, uh, in, in what you do here, I think for most People, they're at least vaguely familiar with Bollywood dancing within the context of Indian cinema. But you write about Bollywood dance culture as it exists beyond film, right? As part of uh, wedding celebrations, but also as part of uh, dance studios. Can you expand a little bit further on uh, this broader culture of Bollywood dance?
1: So the wider world of, of Bollywood dance grew out of existing forms of dance. You can see the wider world of Bollywood dance becoming institutionalized along patterns not dissimilar to the institutionalization of classical dance. So the early 20th century music and dance schools were established across India. So that's one model. Another model is within uh, weddings. Traditionally, within a, an Indian wedding, you would have what's called the Sangeet Sangit, sangit uh, the word used for music um, in Hindi. But it stood for a, um, an all-female gathering, a musical gathering, where the women, the the bride and, and women of the family would gather together and sing auspicious songs and, um, you know, a bit of dancing and also play, you know, like the dholak, the drums and quite, quite sort of simple amateur music making. So that sangeet started to expand with people sort of, you know, mixing in Hindi film songs um, and dances into that. And, and gradually it started, it's been transformed almost Beyond Recognition, because now it involves large performances to all the wedding guests. Dance in Hindi cinema has, has sort of snowballed through the decades. In the old days, it was just the vamps who danced, or the heroine would dance in a certain restrained way or classical way, or it was a folk dance, or she had some extenuating circumstances. So increasingly da- uh, in Hindi films, these boundaries were pushed with heroines dancing more and more because it shows off the heroine really well if she can dance. And audiences obviously love it. So you start to get these these big wedding um, dances. So these are sort of fantasy elaborations on the real world. And then the real world of, of wedding Sangeet starts to imitate these scenes in, in Hindi films. And a lot of money is spent on that. Really, you know, you could be spending sort of $150,000 on your wedding Sangeet alone.
0: And, and this is a central part of your your study is looking at how capital, money, wealth and resources are lavishly displayed within the context of, of these uh, Bollywood dance events and particularly through weddings, but also just in general, how lavish display or ostentatious display of wealth. How does that tie into this economic development, these political shifts in the the 90s that you talk about and the rise in the Bollywood dance?
1: Well, I mean, seeing it, um, in a sense, quite simply, is just a lot more money, large disposable incomes in in the middle classes compared to before. So it's a question of, you know, where does this money go? You know, what do you do with surpluses and how do you display it? In a capitalist society where people are earning money, you can have a sense of uh, excessive expenditure that, that becomes waste, it becomes wasteful, so it can be a, f- a fine line. So I was intrigued to see these you know, huge amounts of money being spent on weddings and gifts in, in wealthy in middle classes, where you know each of the, the bride's friend's dresses could cost a few thousand dollars. So that that raises the status of the family to have, you know, 2,000 guests rather than 1,000 guests or, or whatever. So, you know, do we call it waste? Well, no. And it's because it's absolutely rooted in the family. On the other hand, in the dance bars. So if you're, you know, a man in the dance bar, you're away from your family and you're showering money on a, another woman, not related to the family, um, in, in lavish sort of, you know, incalculable amounts just sort of throwing it there, then that is seen as, as waste and just degeneracy. Actually that money goes to the, the dancer and helps her, you know, build her family and, and feed, you know, any number of, of dependents. The bar girls had, had many, many dependents. So you know a, a vast display in a, in within the family on a wedding Sangeet is good. It's not waste. It, it's it's really excellent. But spending lots and lots of money in dance bars, that's waste and degeneracy.
0: So let's talk about music a little bit. Uh, your article f- focuses primarily on dance, and we've been talking about dance. But how does music fit into this? So first, maybe let's talk about the Bollywood dance scene where this, there's this ostentatious display of capitalist wealth that's apparent within the dance and dancing itself uh, and the costuming that goes along with the dancing. To what extent do we hear that or is that present within the music?
1: If you're looking at visual display, it's very easy just to see scale, vast scale, and you can just tell immediately, my God, that would have cost a fortune. In terms of what you hear, I mean large large ensembles can go back to I mean, as you know, silent cinema, you know, big orchestras in the in the in the big um silent film theaters, which catered more to the, you know, the colonial elite, had big orchestras and that was about prestige and, and, and showing wealth. And then, of course, with the early sound cinema, um, this, it, it was not possible to walk, incorporate big ensembles from a recording point of view. But, you know, as, it, as soon as it did, you know, the ensembles grew. And by, you know, 1950, you had your first declaration of the 100-piece orchestra as this sort of, you know, amazing thing and, and a real status symbol. Uh, we know very well, musicians, you don't need to hire 50, you know, violinists or singers anymore. You can just sort of put the track of that one violinist 50 times. I was intrigued to see some uh, fairly recent hindi films that uh, one in 2008 called Yuvaraj which um, employed the Chennai string orchestra but in this film the um, the orchestra is picturized on screen you know they paid so much more to get this this string orchestra and if they hadn't picturized it nobody would have known so again you know would you hear the difference i think 99.999% of people wouldn't really hear the difference. You know, they might think, hey, this music sounds great. It's a great t-. But they wouldn't really think, gosh, it must have cost so much. It sheer wealth and resources. The oral direction is perhaps it's
0: subtle. As you were talking about the movement of Bollywood dance, particularly in the 1990s, uh, and to be becoming more uh, respectable, more accepted by the middle classes, to what extent does, does this perhaps have to do with the diaspora as well? Uh, the rise of importance of Bollywood generally as an industry, um, Bangladesh dance styles in diaspora in, in the UK or in North America, and, and how did that did, did that have an impact coming back and influencing the importance or, or, or the acceptability of, of Bollywood dance in India?
1: yes it certainly did that's that's a very important strand of of this rise in respectability of this new dance arena and and in fact um bollywood in general gained much more cultural capital in this period from the 1990s and it started to be well it wasn't called bollywood before Bollywood. The, the term bollywood is associated with this this new phase of of hindi cinema and it became quite targeted at diaspora audiences whose ticket buying power was very important you know tickets in in dollars and pounds what have you rather than rupees so you had a new in, a new involvement of the diaspora in in bollywood generally and dance was certainly also led from the diaspora in terms of bollywood dance and also these these models of um other kinds of global dance like like salsa or tango or whatever so you started to get dance classes so yes, that certainly affected it because in the diaspora there wasn't this taboo of of women and dancing was not so strong as in India because you know the diaspora embedded in uh, in larger cultures where you know women dancing is is you know largely seen as a in you know, a perfectly good thing. Fathiyana, 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 So then we sort of, you know, you know, jump to the bar girls. So I mean, you, you know, in India now there is a very conservative government, um, socially, culturally conservative, who who absolutely will see this sort of thing only in terms of of this is this is not Indian culture, this is terrible, it it must be stopped for the social good, and at best these these women are, are sort of pitiful, you know, they they can't help it, and and we must feel sorry for them. I mean, this gets us into terribly difficult topics of, um, you know, if a girl, you know, a girl is there dancing, you know, there for the pleasure of men, a sort of sexualized pleasure, is that sort of, you know, the worst insult to to womankind we can have? Um, but then what about the woman as a, as a, you know, somebody who's working and earning? Um, does this completely devoid the woman of her dignity or, or is is that not the case? So once you start talking to people about these things, it changes very greatly and uh, and what i was interested to see um, in the bar girls debate was the argument got refocused at least partially onto labor and work and the sort of value of that you know value to whom um, rather than just the moral debate and you have to see this as a as a form of work
0: Anna Morecambe is a senior lecturer at Royal Holloway, University of London. She is the author of three books and numerous articles on music and dance in India and Tibet. Her current research focuses on capitalism and economies of dance and music in South Asia. Her article, Terrains of Bollywood, Neoliberal Capitalism, and the Transformation of Cultural Economies, can be found in the Spring-Summer 2015 issue of the journal Ethnomusicology. Ethnomusicology Today is produced with the help and support of many people. Thanks to our student research and production assistants, Grace Coleman, George Daniel, Todd Johnson, Alyssa Bavanet and Brianna Glenn, consulting editor, Harry Berger, and our advisory board members, Portia Maltby, Les Gay, Martin Stokes, David Kaminsky, and Leon Garcia-Corona. Additional support and encouragement has been provided by SCM past president, Beverly Diamond, former first vice president, Margaret Sakisian, and SCM executive director, Stephen Stimfley. Special thanks to the Bombay Royale for the music in this episode. The song Osajna can be found along with more of their recordings on their website, thebombayroyal.com. Thanks again to Anna Morcombe for talking with us about her research. This podcast is produced by the Society for Ethnomusicology with support from the University of Iowa College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and the Iowa Center for Research by Undergraduates. <laughs>
1: Gala mineta, unchavito, ya ta harpoye.